Good morning, church family. So glad to see you. If you are a guest with us this morning, I want to say welcome. Name is Brandon Ziski, the senior pastor here at Austin Oaks Church. We are a church that accepts everybody, even those wearing Dallas Cowboy jerseys. I'm a Bears fan, so whatever. Um, yeah, we're always depressed, so we're good. Um, our heartbeat as a church is to be simply all about Jesus. It's not about performance. It's not about what we technically do up here. It's not about you coming to receive and to consume all that a church can offer you. This is an opportunity for us to connect to the one who changes everything. For him to dig wells into our hearts so that living water overflows inside of us and goes out of us to bless this world that desperately needs Jesus. So that's our heartbeat as a church. And um, I'm excited that next Sunday is going to be Celebration Sunday. This is a moment in the rhythm of our church where we like to set aside specifically a service where we hear stories of life change, where that is in itself the message of the morning. This is why we gather, because we believe that when you profess faith in Jesus, when you trust on him, you move from death to life. The old is gone, the new has come, and it's an opportunity for all of us to not only celebrate with what God has done in the lives of those who he's changed, but it's also a moment for us to remember the gospel for ourselves and to go, let's be joyful. Let us be joyful. We are to be joyful in all things. And so saying all of that actually kind of sets up the message this morning. So before we get into it, I actually want to just spend some time praying, and I want to encourage you as well just to ask the Holy Spirit to give you eyes to see and ears to hear this morning, that he would speak to you clearly to help you understand the depths of your heart this morning. Lord, we come in humility to you this morning. Lord, we ask that even now you would lower our guard, soften our hearts. Lord, help us to see that you are the full fulfillment and satisfaction of all of the desires that rage within. Father, I pray that you'd give me clarity, give me soundness of mind. I pray that the words I speak would be your words. And Lord, if I end up speaking words that are only mine, God, would you transform them? Lord, we are here for you, and we love you. In Christ's name, amen. We're in this series called uh, Water Makes a Way, and it's based out of like the picture of what we believe the Lord is doing in our church where we are seeing God move and calling us as a church to learn and to actually start to move into a life that is being led by the Spirit. How do we be a church that is full of the Spirit? And what does that look like? And as we discover, we start to realize that it starts oftentimes between us and the Lord, where he wants to dig a well inside of us to help us understand that it's in Jesus that our thirsts are truly quenched, that it's in Jesus that we are able to partake in the bread of life that really brings the fulfillment of our hearts, the desires of our hearts. And out of that, it's supposed to be then a river that flows. And we looked at is Ezekiel 47 and saw this beautiful image of the New Testament times when out of the Holy of Holies in the temple, there started this little trickle, this little stream that would progressively grow. And as it got to the Dead Sea, which then it would transform.
transform it into life is this picture of what the church ought to be experiencing in the New Testament times as we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we need to understand, like, what is the purpose and the role and the dynamic at play when it comes to the Holy Spirit? And as we were looking at this, I had a specific message that was supposed to be designed for the Sunday. And I honestly felt like God just did a U-turn in the middle of last week's sermon. And so I want to explain some of that. But as we, we do, I wanted to share with you probably my most favorite place that I've ever been able to visit in Israel. And it's the Wadi Kelt. The Wadi Kelt is a very significant location in the Bible. There are so many aspects of this area. It has different names that is used in different accounts. But it's actually said of David when he wrote Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. When he says that and he leads me through the valley of the shadow of death, more than likely it was the Wadi Kelt that he had in mind. Right? And so when we start to think about this, like it, it, the Wadi Kelt is also the place where Jesus taught the parable of the Good Samaritan where there was a guy who was robbed and beaten and left for dead on the Jericho Road that would go from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And it was a treacherous place. And this is the, the, the scenario where Jesus was painting the scene, was at the, the Wadi Kelt. Now, I remember when we went there, like... I, my first time, totally naive and totally ignorant because like when I read the stories of Jesus' temptation, which is more than likely at the Wadi Kelt, it says wilderness in the Bible. And I know I shared this, but like I literally thought, yeah, probably some desert terrain that's there, but it's got to be a little bit like an oasis, right? It's wilderness. I think of, I'm from Wisconsin. I think of the woods, right? Like when I hear wilderness, it just means you have no plumbing, right? You're in the wild. You're doing your thing, right? That's what I thought of. But when we got there in the bus, our guide stood up and said, hey, listen, I want to let you know, if you have any physical issues, you should not attempt this hike. We were like, oh, come on, okay? He's like, no, literally, he's like, here in the Wadi Kelt, the temperature increases. There is no refuge from the sun. The terrain is, is like narrow and it's jagged and there's no safety rails. It's sandstone, so the ground can shift beneath you. You will easily get dehydrated. And us Texans, that we were there, we were like, we got this, man. You don't know, you know? And then like, we also had a group of Minnesotans, which were like, what does this mean? They were terrified. But there was people on the bus who, as leaders, we knew should not go on that, on that, that hike. But this is a bucket list thing, right? Like, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I don't want to be the guy that says, no. So we let them go, and they shouldn't have. It was, a, it was a, for me, it was amazing. For, for some people, it was Horrible. Horrible. It was a four to five hour hike. Brutal. There's no, there's no exit. Like once you're in, you either go backwards up the hill or you just keep going to Jericho. And it was amazing how horrible it was. Right? Because like it actually helped me feel the temptation of Christ. It helped me place in my mind when David was saying, led through the valley of the shadow of death. It is a rugged and brutal terrain. And I'm telling you, those people who we knew should not have gone on that hike, they needed medical attention. 
We had to carry them. And some of the people that we weren't even able to carry, that people who saw us struggling came to our aid. And we discovered that they quickly became dehydrated. The wilderness. The Bible talks a lot about the wilderness. It paints a vivid picture of the desert. And so when I, actually, I want to let you know this now because the Bible does this. I'm going to use the word wilderness and desert interchangeably, okay? They're the same thing. So don't do what I thought, that the wilderness is a rainforest and the desert is a desert. It's all one in the same. In the Bible, the wilderness conveys these images of absolute desolation, but it then quickly transforms it into a way of redemption, It describes the wilderness as as a place of privation, of like great desperation and lack of need or a lack of the things that you need. And it moves it into a place of renewal and innocence. We learn in scripture that the wilderness is hostile to human life. It's considered all the way back in Genesis where the spirit of God was hovering. Like they would consider the wilderness that, that chaos before God spoke creation into being. It's the place where people try to avoid at all costs. But the Bible doesn't like uniformly like treat the desert or the wilderness as altogether evil. In fact, it just simply labels it as a harsh and dangerous environment where God is most often at work. Sounds great. In fact, if you look at scripture... God uses the desert. He uses desert seasons, desert circumstances, and seasons of dryness, the seasons of grind, the seasons where we sense this distance between us and God, difficulty and hardship and confusion, all of these things. He uses those seasons as a means to bring about renewal and restoration and transformation, blessing and abundance and nearness. In fact, he uses those seasons specifically in order to create streams in the wilderness. Because he doesn't create streams where there's plenty like we see in the Garden of Eden. No, these are streams in the wilderness. This is what we see. And we struggle with this. If you go to Isaiah 43, right, it's like, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? It's springing forth. The next verse there's talking about how in the desert he's going to make a way. He's going to put streams in the wilderness. And when we get these visions of the Holy Spirit, like moving out into the world in the Old Testament, it's always in the concept of a desert or the wilderness. So last Sunday, we briefly talked about God's love. And we talked about how we can tell God loves us by the words that he says. And sometimes the words that he says is in the form of discipline, correction. And we struggle with that. Like our culture in our day is so adverse to discipline, like to the degree that we consider it oppressive. Specifically from fathers. Because a lot of us have a lot of baggage when it comes to our fathers. And so we struggle with this concept, like the God, the Father disciplines those you love, and you immediately start to like go against that and fight against that. 
But we need to understand something significant about the heart of God when it comes to discipline. But not only that, how do you feel about God? What do you think about God when you are in a season? A season of dryness. A season of being in the wilderness, of the desert. That sermon in all afternoon on Sunday and into Monday, I couldn't get out of my mind how the wilderness is significant and how God uses it in Scripture over and over and over in the lives of people to show them who he is and how to establish trust and faith. And then it just started to hit me. It's like, man, God still does this. It's there in the wilderness where God creates these streams and he does something new in our lives, in our families, in our homes, in our relationships, and even in our churches. But we push so hard against it. We so oftentimes miss it. And we so oftentimes misunderstand it. And even misapply the thing that God is trying to do in our hearts in the wilderness. We so often become convinced that when we walk into a season of difficulty that God has left us. Or that God isn't good anymore. Or God has abandoned me. Maybe not you. Or God is no longer faithful. Or God is not good like, like, you think about it, right? Like, just like maybe you don't actually believe it, but what goes through your mind in those moments? Maybe when you are, like, like not experiencing certain needs, like, man, I, like, let's just be real practical. I need to pay the bills. I don't have a job. God, I'm asking for a job. Where, where are you? And then because maybe it's not coming as quickly or it's not unfolding the way you expected, God, are you near? You start to wrestle with those thoughts, over and over and over. And then also in desert wilderness seasons, is it not true that we become blind to the good that's around us? We become blind to all of the blessings that God already has because what happens is that what we don't have becomes the focal point. And then we start to go, see? And we forget everything else. You see, the desert, the wilderness accentuates the desires of our heart more than anything else. More than anything else, when you're in difficulty, when you're in dry seasons, the desires of our heart surfaces. Why are we so quick to question our identity in the wilderness? Who am I? Am I really God's child? And when you begin to question your identity, you actually begin to question the identity of God. Who is God? Is he really my father? Is he really good? Friends, we don't question it in the land of promise. You're like, yeah, God's great. This is amazing. And oftentimes we go, he's amazing because he gave me what I want. We tend to blame God for the wilderness. We tend to blame other people for their circumstances. So I've been wrestling with this. I'm going, God, why is it? What is it that causes us today to miss what you're trying to do and what you're trying to say to us when we enter into these wilderness moments? And I believe, in my opinion, 
I believe, is because we are spiritually entitled. Not just like entitled people, even though that's like a huge cultural issue right now. I don't know if you noticed, but really, we're spiritually entitled people. Right? I, I was going, okay, what is the simplest definition of entitlement? It's the belief that one inherently deserves privileges or a special treatment. It's a feeling of having the right to do or to have what you want without having to work for it. And so when I started to take that and start to think through the spiritual concept of it, a posture of spiritual entitlement are people who tend to oftentimes feel discontented with what they have or where God has them. They begin to really believe or question at a deeper level, God, are you withholding from me? Are you not giving me what I deserve? They begin to feel oftentimes envious and resentful over the blessings of other people. They are oftentimes disappointed with their life and their circumstance of life and the people in their life. They oftentimes doubt God's provision. They, they, look, um, they compare themselves unfavorably when they look at other people's situations. Where's mine? Why them? Where's mine? There's a sense of grumbling and constant complaining about what we don't have instead of what we do have. They shrink back from spiritual disciplines because they just expect God to roll out the blessings without without putting any effort into relationship, without carrying their cross, without no longer satisfying the desires of their flesh. Man, and the worst part is, those who are spiritually entitled actually no longer really care or even believe it's true that Jesus is our ultimate desire. Other things are. So give me that. We live in this broken world that scholars would call the anti-Eden. The Garden of Eden was paradise, full of abundance. Eat anything you want except one tree, right? Anything was there. Four rivers that were constantly creating this beautiful, lush garden. Well, Adam and Eve, if you think about it, became rather spiritually entitled through a temptation. Yeah, God is withholding. Yeah, why can't I take this? And they took it on their own. And also, next thing you know, there was division, separation between God and them. And that broke out into the world. And then Adam and Eve were moved into the wilderness, or what scholars would call the anti-Eden. It's a broken, barren place where we constantly are aware of our hunger and our thirst and nothing in this life will ever satisfy it except for finding our hope and our rest and our satisfaction in Christ alone. It's here in the anti-Eden where God actually begins to do a work of transformation in our hearts. But to be spiritually entitled is to fail to see who you are, fail to see who God is, and to misappropriate your desires. I love what Tim Keller says. The presumption of spiritual entitlement dooms its bearers to a life of confusion when things in life inevitably go wrong. Because they believe they deserve it 
We deserve comfort. We deserve blessing. We deserve nearness. All of these things. And God knows this about us. He knows we're broken. He knows how we're created. He's the one that gave us the hungers and the thirst and the cravings in our heart. He knows the barrenness of this land, the barrenness inside of us. He knows how we oftentimes struggle to walk by the spirit and not by the flesh. He knows that our only hope is in him and in his grace, mercy, and faithfulness, which is why he pursues us. So here's the question, I promise you I'm getting to scripture. Here's the question. What if the very thing that God must do in your life is to lead you into the desert? What if that is what God must do right now in your life? How does it affect who you see yourself to be? How does that affect how you see God? I love what C.S. Lewis writes in his masterpiece, The Problem of Pain, because he starts to explain why God leads us sometimes into the wilderness. And he says this, we can ignore even our pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to a final and unrepentant rebellion, but it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. Because we live in a broken world, sometimes God has to lead us into the wilderness. Hosea chapter 2. It's this crazy story. Hosea is a prophet, and God tells him to go marry this woman named Gomer. Bad name for a woman. Marry her, her name is Gomer, and she's a prostitute. And this was done to show the symbolic nature of the relationship that God has with Israel. In other words, they keep cheating on him. Well, they get married, Gomer leaves him and pursues other men. God tells Hosea, go buy her back. And he does that. And then in chapter 2, you see this beautiful poetic picture. And he starts to say things like in verse 3, like, I'm going to make her like a desert. I'm going to make her life feel barren and parched empty so that she starts to go, what's going on? Verse five, she was thinking, because I'm feeling this emptiness and this barrenness in this desert, I'm going to go pursue my lovers, the people who gave me my food and water, wool and flax, like things that people who satisfied me for a moment. And God says in verse six, I will do this. I'm going to block her away with thorns. I'm going to close her with a wall so she can't find those paths. She's going to go after them, but she can't find them. She ultimately forgot me. And then in verse 14 through 16, he says, and I am going to woo her into the wilderness. That's beautiful language. I'm going to woo her. Guys, remember when you wooed your spouse, right? You even put on cologne, right? Like you, you, like, you wanted to, come on. He was wooing her into the wilderness, and it says that, and he's going to speak tenderly to her there for the sole purpose of helping her remember 
who she is and who he is. So what we're going to do in the moments I have left, we're going to quickly look at Israel's wilderness moment and Jesus' wilderness moment. And I want us to see some of these connections. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that Israel's story in the wilderness is meant to serve as an example to instruct us, right? To, to, in other words, like we are going to learn from their dumb tax. Is that not a phrase you all use? Like they pay the tax on their stupid decisions and we... Right? Like so like we, we, we can learn from them. In other words, like we can see our hearts and our decisions and our choices in their journey. And then we're going to look at Jesus who in Hebrews 2, 17 tells us that he had to be made like in every way like his brothers. He had to be fully human. And when Jesus came, he was 100% God and 100% human. And in Hebrews, it says that he had to learn obedience through suffering. So that meant that Jesus had to go through some wilderness moments to suffer. And people were like, well, he was, this, he was God, so how could he suffer? Yeah, he was also 100% man, and he had to fully identify with us in order to go through that. So we think about Israel. I want you now to turn quickly to Deuteronomy, or I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 13. The story of Israel was they were enslaved in Egypt. They were there enslaved for 400 years. They had the narrative. We are God's chosen people. We are the apple of his eye. He's going to make his name great through us. And everybody in the world is going to know us. We have special relationship with him. But 400 years in Egypt under slavery and oppression was just horrible. And it just got worse and worse and worse. And imagine the desperation and the hopelessness. And it finally got to the point that their cry out to God was so strong that God sent Moses to rescue them from Egypt. Moses comes into the scenes. He goes to Pharaoh. He says, hey, God has sent me. You better let his, his people go, you know, so we can go worship him. And Pharaoh hardens his heart to the degree he even gets mad. He says, hey, these, these Israelites have it easy. Let's make it harder on them. So then Israel gets mad at Moses for even attempting to help. But then God outstretches his arm and performs these 10 plagues. And the final plague is the passing over of the firstborn. If you were to cover your doorpost with the blood of an innocent and spotless lamb. But those who didn't, their firstborn child would die. And Pharaoh said, enough, get out. And as Israel was walking out, they were able to plunder the Egyptians. So now they have enough wealth to go through the wilderness into the promised land. But then we see in Exodus chapter 13, something rather fascinating. Verse 17, it says that when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead, like, like notice this. God did not lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines, even though it was nearby. Like, even though that's the quicker route, even though that is like the most efficient way to get to the promised land, he said, no, I don't want to do this because then the people might change their minds and return to Egypt if they face war. So they led back towards the Red Sea. And as they go to the Red Sea, they're like, man, this is a dead end. They look this way, they're trapped here. And next thing you know, Pharaoh and his armies come and crashing down and they're all mad at Moses, which is ultimately mad at God. Like, why did you bring us out here to die? And then all of a sudden God tells Moses, Moses to basically tell the people, stand still, rest, holds up staff, the Red Sea parts. They go through the Red Sea. 
without any kind of water hitting them. They pass. The Egyptians come in. Red Sea collapses on them. They all die. The scriptures talk about this as the baptism of Israel. We see this in Corinthians. We see this in other parts of the Bible that it literally is this picture of life after death. Like they were in Egypt, enslaved, oppressed. Their hope was dead. It took a miracle, took God's grace, his mercy to come to save. And as he led them through, they parted the water and they went through the water. And now the enemy, the great enemy, Egypt, right, which we would say in the gospel is death in the grave, is now dead. And now they were able to come through on the other side alive. That's why they call this the baptism of Israel. And God's leading them with a pillar of cloud and fire and all these types of things. And you would expect this is going to be a great story. Like, like, we know just from geography to go from the Red Sea to Canaan would only take 11 days. 11 days. That's all it would take. Three days in, three days in, we can't find water. Let's give them some grace. There's a lot of people. It's the, it's the desert. It's hot. It's horrible Kids, I don't know if you ever remember like, or experienced a crying baby in the back seat and it dropped its pacifier and you can't reach the pacifier and you can't pull over. That's stressful. Well, they don't have pacifiers. They're, they're, they're thirsty and they're like, we can't find water. Can't find water. And they start complaining and grumbling. Conveniently already forgetting all that God has done. And it tells us in scripture that God did this specifically to test them. Like, they, God intentionally made it so that they couldn't find water. Why? Is he mean? Is he cruel? No, he's trying to do something deeper. I mean, they were praising him for their redemption, praising him. And now they're like, where's the water? You let us out here to die. Really? Would God go through all of that just to cause you misery? Really? There was enough misery on your life in Egypt. Like, really? Like, you got to start thinking about this. So why is he doing this? The first thing God does to Israel after the baptism is lead them into the wilderness. Why? Because, because God wanted them to know who he is. Trust his fatherly heart. Trust his provision. Trust his protection even there because he's leading them to somewhere great. But he wanted to make sure that their hearts were going to be rooted in relationship. And there's no better place than to do that than in the wilderness. He's using it to build their trust, their faith, seeing him as father and seeing themselves as sons. Do you know how long God intentionally led the first generation, that's the trick, the first generation of Israelites in the wilderness? It's not 40 years. Two years. It would have taken them 11 days. God intentionally led them in the wilderness for two years. 11 days. Two years. Does that bother you? It bothers me. I'm being honest. You're like, I got it. 
God, I learned a lesson. But he's doing something deep in their hearts. He wanted them to know that you are my beloved son. Hosea 11.1 says clearly, God called his son out of Egypt. He's the beloved son. Egypt as a nation was the son. And that's what was on trial in the wilderness. How do I see myself? How do I see God? Now let's look at Jesus in Matthew 3. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 through 17. Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized. But John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And as you come to me, Jesus said, hey, this has to happen. I need to fully identify with humanity. Then John allowed him to be baptized, which is kind of funny. Okay, fine, I'll let you do it. Jesus was baptized, and he went up immediately from the water. I want you to just pay attention to the parallels. Immediately came out of the water. The heavens suddenly opened, and a dove came on him. In other words, like the Holy Spirit filled him. And a voice from heaven cried out, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God is affirming Jesus and the crowd and his posture towards the son. He's my beloved. I'm well pleased with him. Now you would immediately think, again, that the next step in his journey would be a powerful ministry display. He's, he's going to go to Jerusalem and flip tables over or heal a bunch of dead people or like you would expect something. But it's not what comes next. Chapter 4, verse 1. Immediately, Mark says, but Matthew says it this way, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Mark says, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Luke adds in, he fasted, or Matthew does too, for 40 days, and he was hungry. Duh. And you've got to ask a question. Why would God intentionally lead Jesus into the wilderness? He intentionally led Israel into the wilderness right after the baptism, showing sonship and favor. And he led Jesus immediately into the wilderness after showing sonship and favor. This is my son. This is my son. What we need to do is to recognize both Israel and Jesus' response in the wilderness. We need to honestly see ourselves in the story of Israel. And then we need to see Jesus and first and foremost praise him for doing what we could never do. For coming through that wilderness unscathed, victorious, but also learning from our high priest, learning from our savior, learning from our brother how to navigate wilderness experiences. Okay? I want you to get this. If anything else, if anything else, you need to know that if God saw fit to lead Israel into the wilderness on purpose, and if God saw fit to lead Jesus into the wilderness on purpose, God sees it fit to lead you into the wilderness on purpose. So who are you? What's your true identity? 
it surfaces in those moments. Not only is God at work, but Satan is at work as well. Because in Matthew 4, 3, we see the tempter came and look at the temptation. Do you see it? What is, what is being poked at? Most of the time when this is taught, people focus a lot on the bread, stones, make sure you know the word piece, which is true. But that is what Satan is leveraging to get to the deeper issue. If you are the son of God, what was just said about Jesus? This is my beloved son, and I am well pleased. In the ancient East, Near East at that time, fathers were to be responsible for provision, protection, feeding, and providing for their family. And even if they didn't, they were publicly disgraced and shamed and almost like excluded from their tribe. Jesus even says like, you know, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, it's kind of like idea like even the evil fathers know how to provide for their children. So here, Satan, after 40 days, looks at Jesus, you're like, oof, you look rough. Jesus, if, help me out, because if you are the son of God, why isn't he feeding you? I mean, like, if he's good, a good father provides. And he's, since he's not providing, he's not protecting you. Like, did he leave you? Did you do something wrong? Like, you start to, like, you can imagine how this starts to play out. And he says, listen, like, if you are the son of God, he really can't be that mad at you if you actually use your priority as a son to take any of these rocks and turn it into pumpernickel. I like pumpernickel. Like, turn it into pumpernickel. Just, just do it. Man, Jesus, come on, just say the word. Why is he withholding from you? Why are you suffering so much, Jesus? Well played, Satan, well played. Man, if God loved you, you wouldn't be struggling with that relationship. If God really loved you, he wouldn't leave you still wrestling with your insecurity. I mean, if God really loved you, you wouldn't feel pain, like, if God really loved you, you, you would get what you've been praying for, right? Like, if God was really with you, maybe he left you, or maybe there's an unconfessed sin in your life. Like, and you start to, like, right? You start to question, like, okay, well, who is he? But really what you're doing is, am I really a daughter or a son of God? Like, what is the status of this relationship? So who am I? And, and next thing you know, we're, like, all being stirred up to go get our own, to provide for ourselves, to take care of ourselves, And we start to trust our desires, our thirsts, and our hungers more than what God said or God did for us. We easily, quickly forget all of the blessings that are around. We forget the fact that God even said, I love you when you remembered and understood the cross and resurrection in your life. And you're amazed that God gave his one and only son for you when you were an enemy of God. And you're like, how could this be? And now because you don't have a certain need being met, you're like, well, God, you don't love me. Spiritual entitlement. 
Jesus replies, I am hungry. Like, I, uh, he didn't say that. I'm feeling in my imagination. Because I've heard to say, people are like, well, he's God. He probably wasn't really hungry anyways. I'm like, he was fully human. I can't go eight hours without getting cranky and crabby. Like when I fast for one day, I don't even do a full 24 hours. I'm that much of a wimp. By the time it's like 9, 10 p.m., every fast food joint in Austin is screaming my name, and I always give in to Whataburger. 40 days in the Wadi Kelt. My team couldn't hike for five hours without nearly dying of dehydration. 40 days. Do you think his guards were down? If you are the son of God, why do you look? Oh, you look so bad. He doesn't love you. Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, not excusing that we have physical needs. But he goes, those desires are pointing to something deeper. Man also lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, the father said, I'm his beloved. I'm not questioning it. I don't care if it's feast or famine. He loves me. That's going to be my lifeline. He said it. I'm not going to question that. I'm not going to question if he's good or not because he already said that he loved me. And with that, he's a good father. And so therefore, if he's good, he knows that this 40-day fasting period is for my good. I trust his plan. I trust his timing. I trust his purposes. And I know that when this season is over, he may very well meet my needs. And if not, it doesn't change if he's good or not. I'm going to live by his word, not by what I want. You see, we need to understand this in the desert because the path to blessing, the path to allowing God to dig wells in our heart is to listen to God and do what he says. Hang on to it for all dear life. Don't command to God or command to life that this is what I need, and so therefore this is what I'm going to get. Jesus never wavered in, his in God's declaration of love. He knew that God intentionally led him into the wilderness. There's a purpose here. I'm not going to question his provision. But we are so much like Israel in Psalm 78, 18. Psalm 78, 18. Speaking of Israel, they deliberately tested God, demanding the food they craved. They're testing the fatherhood of God. You're not good. Yeah, 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 you took us out of Egypt. Sure, you parted the Red Sea. Sure, you gave us water. Yep, manna. Yep, quail. Yep. You're not good again. I'm going to test you again. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2 through 3. Moses speaking to Israel before the promised land. He says, hey, remember that the Lord your God led you. Key. He led you on this entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness. Should have only been two, but you all decided to go and do your own thing. So that, why? So that he might humble you. That, that means that exposing your thirsts, 
and your desires. That means exposing all of the props that you lean on for your provision and your satisfaction. It means realizing that in the deserts, in the wilderness, you're actually naked before the Lord. And in that, we, we constantly try to hide and we constantly try to put on different masks and different personas and try to get and be what we want to be without resting in sonship or daughtership with the Lord. Humble you and test you to what? To know what was in your heart. Whether or not you would keep his commands. Verse 3. He humbled you by letting you go hungry. God is love. I don't believe that. That is love. That, that is love. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known, angel bread, right? So that you might learn that man does live on bread alone. But even then, they're like, God's like, hey, only collect enough manna for one day. Don't collect anymore because he wants them to trust him and to depend upon him. But some are like, I don't know if he will come through. So I'm going to collect a few days worth. And guess what? Maggots. And they craved quail. And over and over and over, when they realized they don't have what they want, they kept saying, life was so much better in Egypt. Life was so much better in Egypt. Would we have rather died? They were jealous of the floating, bloated corpses in the Red Sea. That's better than this. Well, at least we had our tummies full. Deuteronomy 1, 31. You saw in the wilderness how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all along the way you traveled until you reached this place. Beautiful picture. The wilderness isn't a place of punishment. It says in Deuteronomy 8, 15, 16 that he actually did this to do good to you in the end. Like he leads you into the wilderness to do good good to you, to remind you, to establish you that you are a child of God and that your identity is not connected to what you want or what you desire or what the world labels on you. I, I want to say some things that I know is going to be a little shaky, but hear my heart. Hear my heart. Sexuality has come to be one of the core identity, identity markers in our society over the last 40 years, more so today. But we are more than our sexual identity. We are more than our gender. We are more than our pronouns. That's not who you are. You are created in the image of God. You are who the Father says you are. And it's not just that. You are more than your political preference. You are more than who you voted for. You are more than the color of your skin. You are more than where you live. You are more than your degree. You are more than your athletic achievements. Oh, and your children's athletic achievements, because none of us live vicariously through our children. Right? You are more than the vehicle you drive, more than the home you live in, more than the clothes you wear, more than the foods you eat. You don't understand that until you go into the wilderness. And God is going to carry you like a child to speak tenderly to you, to be there with you. And yes, you're going to be tempted but that's where you go, no. God so loved the world, he gave his son. 
If God gave us his son, would he not give us all things? His ways aren't my ways. His thoughts aren't my thoughts. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. So here's how I want to end. Some of you may very well be in that wilderness now. And it's, it's, it's not fun. It's a place of struggle. But I want you to know how much the Lord loves you. And the reason why this matters is because when we talk about water making a way, when we talk about streams, which is always a reference to the Holy Spirit, that always seems to happen when we're in the wilderness. Psalm 84. And here's how I'm going to end. I'm just going to like read parts of this psalm and I'm going to pray it. And I just want you to pray along with. I'm going to have these verses up on the screen. You can go back and reference it. But this is a beautiful psalm. It speaks right into these moments. Verse 4, how happy are those who reside in your house, who praise you continually. It's those who know that the presence of God is better than life, who have experienced it, who have tasted and seen. Happy are the people whose strength is in you, in his words, where they understand that Jesus is the bread of life. whose hearts are set on pilgrimage, meaning that the Lord's going to lead you. He's going to lead you. And his path is not always the quickest route. His path might take two years instead of 11 days. But if our strength is in him, our hearts are set on that because we know he's leading us to something better. As they pass through the valley of Baca, which is a valley of struggle, a valley of pain, a valley of turmoil, a valley of confusion, they make it a source of spring water. That's what Jesus did in the wilderness. He made it a source of spring water because he did not question the Lord's heart. They go from strength to strength. Each appears before God in Zion, the Lord God of armies. Hear my prayer. Listen, God of Jacob. Consider our shield. God, look on the face of your anointed one. Better is a day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than live in the tents of the wicked people. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord grants favor and honor. Watch this. He does not withhold good from those who live with integrity. Happy is the person who trusts in you, Lord of hosts. In the Garden of Eden and in the anti-Eden, in plenty and in want, happy, blessed is the one.
Satan will always want to confuse you and tempt you to choose Pharaoh as your father instead of God as your father. So what will you do in the wilderness? Lord, I thank you for this. And I know that this may have been a word for people who are in the midst of it, but I also believe, God, that this is a word for people who maybe have come out of it and also maybe a preemptive word for those of us who might be going into it. Lord, it's no wonder that when you taught us to pray, the first thing you wanted us to understand and to remember is our Father. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand the gift of you being our Father. Lord, I pray for those of us in this room that have issues with fatherhood due to um, fathers in the past who've left wounds in our hearts or um, absences in our lives. Lord, I ask that your spirit would redeem that and renew that and help us to see you and know you as our perfect father. Lord, I ask that you would help us to root our full identity as a child of God. We are who you say we are. And to trust your heart, trust your purposes no matter what, if it's good or bad, pleasant or hard, plenty or want, you never change. So Lord, give us eyes of faith to see a glimpse of what you're doing in the wilderness. Lord, I pray that this gets settled in our hearts so we can become a church that desires to be a church that overflows this living water into the world around us. So Lord, we just ask for your spirit to move now in Christ's name.